talent, is it not? And uh, I mean, at the 8 o'clock service, we have, uh, boy, that lifts you right up there. And Ralph, I know you struggle for those high notes lately, but I'm going to tell you, my son, who normally sits right back here, he and I had a moment this morning, I was talking about you, you're my favorite 8 o'clock service. So, uh, and so, uh, it's been such a blessing. I shouldn't say it like this, but God's hard up for leaders, isn't he? Now, the text of Matthew chapter 9 is going to say that. He won't say it quite like that, he's going to say it more delicately. But his whole strategy and plan to advance the kingdom rests on qualified, competent, God-called and uniquely anointed leaders that would find their place. Becky and I found ourselves seated in the bleachers at Breckenridge High School. It was my first high school graduation to attend, 189 graduates. Quite frankly, it was... If it's, if it's been, how we, we're in attendance, probably some of you in this room were in attendance there. And it was just, uh, I cannot explain what I feel when I go to a high school uh, graduation because you know all the moms and dads and grandparents and friends probably see more than the kids themselves. Your kids sometimes are full of themselves, but you look and you see in there what you saw some of those videos from our own, 10 of our own students graduated from members of our church, but... To see them walk across the platform and to know that, and it it encourages you. America's in a good place. I know there's some gainsayers and negative people, but you've got to feel encouraged when you see young men and women like like we saw graduate from our high school. And I'm just so blessed to be a part of this community. Uh, We had one uh, teacher uh, use a metaphor as a mirror. And challenges students to, you know, take a look in that mirror. And, and basically she gave that as a metaphor. And, and, uh, and she's a very popular teacher and heads up a major responsibility, especially focusing on kids going off to college and was identified with our church years ago. And then we had another young man, and there were several speeches, but there was another young man who talked about roller coasters. A gifted, natural leader. Would you not say that's true, Nancy? Just a very gifted, not only communicator, but a leader. How do I know that? Because with several thousand in that gymnasium, he had every one of us riding a roller coaster like this as all the graduating seniors sitting there mocked out what it was like to go up and down and what have you. But also a powerful metaphor that life is like a roller coaster. And uh, as he, they were able to list some of our students uh, that are graduating, what their aspirations, where they'll be going to college, those who are going to college. And then... Uh, to find their place, what they were majoring in, and what their career orientation was. And as Becky and I sat in those uh, bleachers, uh, it's just like life rolls in front. This is why we do what we do. And I have to say, Miss Nancy, um, uh, certainly seeing you there leading the choir and uh, such a prominent place of so many folks in leadership, that's got to make you feel really, really, I know it does. You're not one to self-promote, but wow. I'm thinking, I want to go get her autograph <laughs> when it was all done. It was just a, it was one of those moments that you stop and you're, you're a fly on the wall and you're seeing God work. And I know many of you with your children and grandchildren and relatives, there were a lot of names, last names listed on that, uh, on the graduation deal and, and uh, the program. And, I'm, and I just saw the fiber and connectedness. Jesus is preparing his 
his 12 graduates, his disciples, to launch them that this will not be the end for you when I depart, but he's preparing them and mentoring them to a place of moving forward. We see in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 27, this is a first and a two-part message. I'll be here Sunday, and then I'll be here next Sunday, and then on Thursday, a week away from uh, after next Sunday, that following Thursday, I'll be on a plane to Nepal, and then uh, for a week, and uh, then I'll be going into China. I won't be saying a lot because some of this is recorded, and, and next week I'll probably have a part uh, of the message. I'm going to kind of share a little bit what I'll be doing, but we won't be recording. So, uh, But God's been obviously preparing my heart and the people where we're going. I'll be working with leaders there, training and equipping pastors and youth ministers at established schools, which focus as a focal point there, an excuse to gather them together, but also uh, be doing church work and evangelism. And uh, obviously I, I, I keep it very personal because I see myself as your uh, temporary pastor, but, but also missionary as your voice and uh, ministry as I travel. Matthew 9, verse 27, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men kept, came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied, verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, Will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. Can you imagine that? They just were given their sight, and Jesus said, Now don't tell anybody. Yeah, right. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been Mute spoke, the crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here comes the punchline, verse 37. Then he says to his disciples, The harvest is plenteous. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the divine strategy. Profound, yes, but extremely simplistic. You've got, you got an unfinished task, an overwhelming mission. And I'm going to give you the strategy how to fulfill it. I want you to take a look and, of course... As I have presented this text, I have a vision of this that he says to his 12 disciples, who basically grew up in this area. It's not like we had interstate highways back then. They didn't travel much. And so a person would grow up, and within a few miles of where they were buried, I mean where they were, uh, where they were born, they would be buried. They lived most of their life there. And so when Jesus said, take a look down there, look, the fields are white, my suspicion is, is that these men and women that were with him as disciples, familiar to the community, where they were growing up, saw the turbans on the men and the regalia of the women as they were clothed and as they were moving in mass that because of the uniformity of their attire, he was pointing out to them the fields, look at those turbans, white unto harvest, ripe for the picking, ready to be reaped. 
and I live in a farm community, you know, of course, crops growing right now, but there comes a time you can't vote, you can't take the day off. When it's time for that crop to be harvested, you cannot delay, you cannot take a vacation, you've got to, the, the crop itself mandates what your response must be. And this is what Jesus is appealing to basically a farm community. He said, I want you to understand the harvest is ripe. And here's your strategy. Before you do anything, pray. Here's the assumption. That you will be so right with God, so empowered by Him, so anointed by Him, that when you pray and talk to God, it's Jesus saying, pray the Lord of harvest will send labors, that you not only will be a laborer, but that you will be a participant in sending labors into that harvest. Now we have a problem at Corinth Baptist Church. We don't have enough workers. Now for some who would use that in an accusatory fashion, I have to say to them, we've had this problem for 2,000 years. You understand that, right? In fact, if you go back to the minutes of this church, you will find a lot of our business meetings had to do it. It's all said and done, of course, financial resource, the normal operation. But this church, like so many churches for 2,000 years, we are constantly dealing with the fact there's just not enough help. We could use more help. In our staff meeting this past Thursday, um, we were discussing this matter, and I, I looked at Jeannie, and of course, uh, Jeannie happens to be, I said, Jeannie, Jeannie, let me ask you something. Could we use some more help in the children's ministry? I mean, you just filled up and you say, don't, well, we're turning help away, don't need any more. I've never heard you say that. In fact, with the normal attrition, people taking off and vacation Bible school, normal emphasis, I'm letting you know that there is a tremendous need for workers in the children's department. And then I looked at Andrew and I said, Andrew, what about you? Hey, Andrew, let me ask you. Could you use some more help in the youth department? Of course. Now, Bob, who normally is at our staff meeting, though he's not a paid, he's a volunteer, he coordinates my, uh, our, our connect groups, but has a great emphasis on the, on the adult ministry, ask him the same question. And often you find one leader that would maybe head up a connect group and gather, we got prospects, we've recently we've organized what we call the home team, and four of us are gathering information, identifying through membership, and who are the folks who are once here but not here. And this is just one aspect of our outreach, just one, that we don't broadcast that much. And are, haven't yet found a church, and we've identified 19. We sat in our staff the other day and checked off these are names that are familiar, and let's see what we can just go out there and reach them. Say, hey, look, would you, what can we do? How can we pray for you? Not to mention all the untold area. Shenanda brought to our attention tremendous need in our worship ministry. You'd like to think, well, it's, it's the rock of Gibraltar. I mean, it's going to go on forever. We'll never need help. Yeah, right. And so we need help in that area. And quite frankly, with my email from yesterday and then a phone conversation, finding out that here we have a dear saint that's been laboring for 16 years, and guess what? We need help right here at the 8 o'clock service. In other words, it's an age-old problem. And the formula is very simple. Be spiritual. You be spiritual. How do you get that in the formula? Jesus said to his 12 2,000 years ago, take a look how tremendous the need is. All those folks down there who need to hear the gospel. What was his immediate charge? I want you to stop what you're doing. Drop you. You're all responsible. All 12 of you go down there and, and give them the gospel. No, here's their strategy. And there's a lot of things that's indirectly stated, and yet emphatically so. 
He said, you pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He will send laborers into the field. I'm not responsible for your prayer sheet. Diane collects that and Chuck Tall's involved in compiling it. And it goes out in our email and it's posted out here. But there's been something in, oh, I guess the last two months came up on the sheet. I, I don't know who did it. Maybe it was Chuck or Diane. But it says, pray for godly leadership at Corinth Baptist Church. That's a good thing. Often you give me one or two leaders, 10, 15, 20 people can immediately be impacted. When one or two leaders feel compelled to go and do a ministry somewhere else, and we've had several of those, quite frankly, it leaves a void and a vacuum. Jesus was giving us his strategy. If you're following along in our notes, number one, God initiates this plan. It's his fields, and he presents them to us. He, he gives us the heads up. This whole idea of missions must be a personal matter. And the real, the real challenge, I've watched this in church work, and understand, I, I did not grow up in church. And, and you've heard my testimony uh, uh, nearly two years. The first Sunday in June I will have begun as your interim pastor two years ago. And as I've shared my testimony uh, somewhat throughout, you know that I didn't grow up in church and I wasn't accustomed to church culture. And I have to tell you, to this day, I'm still, uh, though I've been all of my life serving, preparing, training, leading in church work, I still have enough of a recollection and memory of what it is to be a non cultured, church-going person. And my observation in this one is, is that Jesus says to us, every one of us, who's responsible for children outreach, for youth outreach, for adult outreach? We have enough infrastructure. I was sharing this with the staff the other day. We have enough in- infrastructure with accountability groups. Connect groups would be the, the very essence Connect groups I see as, as, a, as shepherding groups that not only are instructing, but also bear as a part of our whole burden of identifying unsaved, unchurched, the prospects. Not just meeting in a home or meeting in a sanctuary, but these are our... We have enough infrastructure right now in place to reach all Breckenridge County. But it must begin with what Jesus basically is saying in this point is that it is God who does the initiation. It only takes one person. One person set aflame for God, connected to his church in a place of servant leadership that makes the difference. And I often say if we, we lack leadership, maybe the greatest indicator is it is reflective of where we are spiritually. Because Jesus' formula was pray that the Lord of the harvest send labors into the field. And of course we should be laborers, but simultaneously we're prayer warriors. And so we say, Lord, I see the fields, and you're initiating it. It's your mandate. It's not something that was done out of Nashville or out of Chicago or, quite frankly, or some denominational headquarters or even, even uh, quite frankly, a, a, a church that, that has a location here. In it is a supernatural mandate given to us from God himself. And so when I look at those lists, of, I have them right here. And I know our, our school's doing such a great job of discipling with a great approach and curriculum from kindergarten through 12th grade and a very intense uh, number of days they'll attend and curriculum you'll acquire and outcome-based is that when those students walked across with their regalia and received their diploma, 
it was a, a moment where, and if, if I can use the terms, it's, it's, it's even a biblical pattern, is that they have, were mentored, and now they're coming to a milestone in their life. They've completed their experience, their knowledge acquisition. They've been tested on it. They know these things. They can perform these things, and now we move them to the next level of their life. They graduate from high school. In the same sense, I look at that, and I'm thinking, this is America. Our challenge is to impact the world. So number one, God initiates. He presents the fields. Number two, his people are to be supernaturally seeing the field. This is very fascinating to me on this one. What are we to see? Well, we are to see the world. See the world. I've got a few stats up there. That if you want to push this here, let me see if you... There we go. See the world... Two people die every second on this planet. So I'll give you just that number right there. Every second, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. Every second that I am standing here on this planet, two people die. It's really 1.8, by the way. But it's just hard for me to say 1.8. So those who quote such statistics from the secular documentation of being able, as best we can tell, to guesstimate how often do people die on this planet? And do you understand that those two people dying every second, quite frankly, the majority of people that are dying go off into eternity without knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior? And as I'll talk in just a moment, the more, majority of those people have never even heard the gospel. 80,000 people will die each day among the unreached. And I have... A total page of just stats, in fact, and I cleaned this up because I wanted to adjust for the things we were doing in our services today. But we have been able to scientifically identify unreached people groups. These are be people that have not, don't have access to the gospel, don't have a, even a printed page of the gospel, don't have a part of the gospel, don't have someone that has shared the gospel. And in these people groups on planet Earth, 80,000 people will die every single day having never heard the gospel. These unreached people group represent 2.7 billion people. So from this group of 2.7 billion, 80,000 people will die every single day. And of course, we know with population growth, population is replenished. Babies are born. But nonetheless, we're just talking about those who die past the age of accountability who basically go into eternity not knowing God. 52% of the world's 7 billion population is under the age of 20. And so you have the number of 20 up there. Why is that significant? We touched on this oh, several weeks ago. 95%, depending on who you read, after 95% of the people who get saved get saved before their 21st birthday. Some would say 80% before their 19th birthday. Depending on who you read after. But here's, here's reality. We've done this in this service before. How many were saved before you were 21? You received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior before you were 21. Hold them up real high. Now take a look around the room for those who are sitting in the front. Let's put the hands down. Let's ask this question. How many were saved after 21? 22 years of age and older. Let me see your hand. Now praise the Lord for that. Now here's the point. You can get saved at any age. My dad got saved six months before he died at 72 years old. You can get saved at any age. We don't minimize that. But it would appear that God has so created the human being that the person is very receptive to truth. You know this from being a parent and grandparent. As these young children grow up, and they're like 
they're just taking in knowledge and taking in life and gathering the data and being mentored and getting the information. So when you're old and you're 25, 26, you don't stop and wonder why does the light turn green and not yellow and all the things that kids drive us crazy and acquisition and consuming information. Because you get older, you basically are living your life and you're not questioning and doubting it. The downside of it is you get galvanized. That's why it's hard to lead an older person to Christ because they've been locked in the way they're, they're thinking. They're almost concrete in their thinking. So Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to see. See the harvest? Ripe, dude. Ripe. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers in the field. And basically there's an appeal here. I want you to see the field. And so what do we see? Can I tell you there's a real tendency? A real tendency. For Americans, for Christians, to lose the supernatural capacity to envision the world. That's why occasionally a preacher will stand up or... You'll teach, we'll teach our lessons here. We'll put up our, our maps and, and show some pictures and PowerPoints. And we'll say, just let me tell you something. There's a big world out there. And most of the world does not have the benefit we have right here in Breckenridge County. I will tell you the thing that I had a knot in my stomach uh, with, uh, with graduation uh, on Friday. I always have asked this question, and Bill Bright first posed it to us. He said, the world's like an hourglass. At the very top, the entire population is birthed into a culture. And then by mandate with, with westernized cultures where compulsory education is placed, they are forced by law and culture, as the hourglass narrows, to a place where they are all assembled. It's called high school. So by the time that young person graduates, the next time they are together will be in the graveyard. And Bright suggested something in his writing that has never left me. And that is, of the 189 young people that walked across and received that diploma, I know we checked on their math and we checked on their science, and we know what the guidance office, because our mandate, we receive a majority of income for educating our children, comes from federal assistance, then state assistance, and, when you, and then locales. And so there's a mandated curriculum. But there's no mandated curriculum in our public school system anywhere in America that we must press the claims of Christ. We believe in the, the great uh, wall between church and state. And they rocked across that platform, received their diploma, all the enthusiasm, and appropriately so. But here is the pressing question I had in my mind. Is there any of those 189 graduates that have walked across that platform and have not heard the claims of Jesus Christ and that they have an opportunity to respond to him as the gospel. That's what's on my mind. I think of the 33 Southern Baptist churches in our local association, not to mention the other gospel-preaching churches, and moms and dads who know Jesus. I would like to think in my heart of hearts that there's not a single student that graduated from Breckenridge High School that somewhere appropriately did not hear that Jesus Christ loves them, died for them, was buried for them, and rose from the dead for them. I do not put that on the back of, of Breckenridge High School. That is on the back of the 33 Southern Baptist churches in our association. It's on the back of every other gospel-preaching churches, whether it's Baptist or not. It's on the back of every mom and every dad. And it's also on the back of every peer. I was so compelled by that, and I was not in church work, 
that as a senior in high school, getting saved December 10, 1969, the logical thing for me was, as a student body president, the captain of the football and basketball squad, I immediately translated, my new life was, wow, my friends are going to die and go to hell if, I, if someone doesn't tell them about Christ. And so two days after I was converted, standing in front of a locker at Tuskegee Valley High School, having shared my faith with Rick Felbush, my closest friend, he was short and fat, I was tall and skinny, we were the life of most parties. When I talked to him about Jesus, he immediately told me he'd been saved since sixth grade. It blew me away. And then I found out there was a lot of coward Christians at Tuskegee Valley High School who never once told me. At that moment, I decided not one kid would graduate from my school, having not at least heard the gospel one time. And so I started on a holy mission. And by the way, I coached up legally and legally today, I might add. Before I graduated, every single student, ninth grade through twelfth grade, every teacher, every administrator, every school board member, with exception of Barry Weaver, who was killed in a head-on tractor-trailer accident, heard that gospel of Jesus Christ. I've never gotten over that. It's why you never get cocky in ministry. What I experienced, as all the glory and the shaking the hands and the fun and the experience of this, I'm thinking one more time I'm reminded, this generation's leaving Breckenridge County, but many of them never to return, and I wonder, did they hear the gospel of Christ? Did our moms and dads, did our local churches, did our youth and children's ministry, did those who know Christ share Christ? Because as wonderful as we get all the different codes of their areas of, of accomplishment, their GPAs, and all that should be done, I would never take away any of that. But did they hear the message? And so we look... These unreached people. We must also see something at home. Can you put that next slide up there? Oh, by the way, one in four. Let's go back. One in four people on this planet live in one country. What is the country? China. For every four people on this planet, one of them is Chinese. And most unreached people group. I'll be sharing next week, but God's allowed me the privilege of sneaking into an area meeting with some leaders that's going to represent multiple millions that don't even have a gospel witness as to where they're going. I've got to be careful what I'm saying here. And in that, quickly able to multiply after spending investing time there. One in four people. It's hard for us to imagine because you can't go anywhere without hearing of, of being affected by the South something that's religiously related here. Some God term or religious jargon I hear on route just every day in my life. And with the premise that we are a Christian nation, to a great degree, we still have, most of the people in this, in this country have had a confession of being a born-again Christian. Still believe in prayer, that Judeo-Christian ethic that we believe in our culture. One in four. But when you go overseas, it's not the case. Then we must see, the point was God initiates this plan. His people are to supernaturally see the field, see the world, and also see things at home. I don't know, we'll have a a lot of, uh, by the way, I want to remind you, 6 o'clock tonight uh, in this room, Brother Bob will also be sharing with us about our our building, and you'll see this picture there as well. But I want to just basically, I wanted a picture of the home front. So this mandate that Jesus gave us, though many of you will never go to the Holy Land. A few of you have been to the Holy Land. But most of you will not go there and literally see the geography that Jesus was pointing at and saying to his disciples, go win the world from right here. 
But since we live in America, we're born in America, most of us, in the, and many of you right here in this county or an adjacent county, here's where we are. We must re-see what Jesus did with his disciples who grew up in, if I can use this, grew up in their county. Seeing their neighbors and friends. He, they knew some of those people under those turbans. But Jesus wanted them to re-see and re-envision their world. And so we have a figure, 195,943, or basically rounding 200,000 people are in Breckenridge County and surrounding counties. Let me just click this off quickly. Here's some numbers. 20,059. That's Breckenridge County. Grayson County, 24,053. Hancock County, 8,392. By the way, don't minimize. That's a small county, very, slow, very minimal population. Just remember, Jesus loves those folks too. Every one of them. Hardin County, 94,000, our larger county, 174. Hardin County. Meade County, 26,349. Ohio County, 22,916. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus loves people. He died for people. Someone once said, kind of like joked a little bit about Emily, do you think Jesus loves China more than America? Now watch my answer. I'm going to say yes with this understanding. More people, more love. Does he love individuals in China more than he loves individuals in America? No. He loves every individual equally without any kind of change or adjustment. He is not prejudicial. He is not also tied in that he loves America more than he loves China, even though all the, the ramifications we have in America is becoming more thinking, boy, we need to take care of our own. And I understand the political aspect, but I want the doors of freedom to remain open so the love of Jesus Christ can com be communicated to every lost soul. And so God loves all people equally. And when we see a, how he has allowed and collected people Look, I'm not a fisherman, but I know that right where I live, right down there's a, evidently a spot that I see people come up. Must Fishing must be really good there because people come in from all over, drop their boats and drop the line because fishermen, you know, I'm going fishing where the fish are biting. Can I just say this to you? There are places on this planet that do not have the gospel, who need to hear the gospel, and that's where the fish are biting. God initiates this, he presents the field. Number two, his people are supernaturally to see the field. 200,000 people are within our Jerusalem connection, some of which right from your home. I just wonder, as you remember, and I'm, I'm probably going to recycle this in my interim period. Do you remember when we put out the armbands and wristbands and I put up the harvest board and we asked you from the congregation on a little... Uh, a stick and pad to write the name of someone that's lost and we folded that over and we, we put it up there and we began to pray for all the lost people just from the people in our church. Just from the individuals that you know that are lost. It would be nice that before you were planted, before you die, that every single person within your 200 person sphere of influence, and that's about the average of the average person, if every one of those persons you saw it as a holy mission, that everybody that names your name, that you know their contact, if you're old, able to talk to them about their favorite car or their favorite sporting team or you work with them or they live next to you, you would like to think that before you die that every single person who would show up at your funeral, they've already heard the gospel at least one time from you. 
Jerry Falwell started a church when he was 19 years of age. They had no organized outreach program. And their first anniversary, they had 800 people in attendance. How did that happen? By the way, it was a secret. Every single person who knew Jesus, wherever they went, told people about Jesus. Some of them got saved, and some of them were added to this new little church and a little old Donald Duck bottom package factory. When you walked in, your feet stuck to the floor because of the syrup. And this young, single preacher boy planted a church, and the end result was is that the people got so fired up from God that every single individual shared his or her faith that by the time of the end of the 60s, it was the largest church in America rated by Elmer Towns. That's dates just back then. Here's the magic of growing a church. Individual people see the world. Pray the Lord of the harvest and labors into the field. While they're walking with God and seeing God and having the supernatural vision, the anointing of God is upon their life. And as I'm praying, God send laborers into the field. I also am going into the field. I also am sharing Christ. Hey, let me ask you a very pointed question. In the last month, how many people, because of you, have heard the gospel? Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose from the dead. There's the key. If every single person who knows Jesus Christ is Savior, forget a month. If the 450,000 churches in America, 15 million members in Southern Baptist churches, if 15 million members who profess they know Jesus Christ as Savior, if every one of them, just one person a year, would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to clue you in. You do not hire your preacher. You do not hire a youth minister or a children's director or a staff person or even appoint your deacons or appoint your leaders to do something that you are to do. All of us are to do this. Every single one of us are to comply with Jesus' mandate. What? See the fields. Pray the Lord of the harvest and labors into the field. And I myself assume the role of being one of those labors. And what do I run with? I run with the gospel. Wouldn't it be great, and even if you're an introvert, and most of us statistics, so I bear this out, don't like public speaking. So in your own way, I taught a class for years, a thousand students every single semester at Liberty in the mountain there. And I teach a thousand students every semester, and I got this organized and structured in such a way, and I presented 19 ways in which a person can present the gospel. Why? Because all of us are fearful. They eat, and it was a sign. You, you cannot graduate from this class unless you at least present the gospel one time. I didn't say you had to lead someone to Christ, but at least present the gospel. And you know the one, number one uh, method that was used? I gave them a method. And it was basically, write a letter. Write a letter to someone that you know really well, and I'll show you how to write a personal letter. Started with a form letter, gave them a copy of it. And then, here's how to take the form letter, personalize yourself, and write it to a person. And in that letter, it ends up being about a two-pager, you present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've had the privilege of seeing people that led their first person to Jesus. And most church people don't lead people to Jesus. That's my observation now after 40-some years of ministry. Most people in the average church have never led a person to Jesus Christ himself personally. And here's what I've discovered. You know why people don't lead people to Christ? They don't give the gospel. In America, still to this day, statistics bear out. If you share the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with ten people, 
one of them will come to Christ. Now, I'm a salesman at heart. Share the gospel to ten people, probably one of those ten is going to come to Christ. See that field. It's white unto harvest. Number three, an eternal perspective is realized. I just want you to know in your notes, uh, the last part of this, we're going to leave blank. But here we go. There's a heaven to gain. I'm going to leave us with heaven because I knew we had several things that we were doing today. I want to make sure that you understand. See the fields. God initiates it. On the third part, there's an eternal perspective realized. There's a heaven to gain. Heaven is a place being prepared by Christ, John 14, 3. It is described as a glorious city likened to pure gold. This is Revelation 21, 11. The palaces may possibly be made of ivory. I love that. Ivory palaces, Psalm 45, verse 8. It's a place of joy, Psalm 16, 11. Someone has said it this way. If you can put that next slide up. Heaven to gain, hell to shun. Here we go. Heaven is a place of no. No what? I love this. No tears. This is not in your notes, but they're on my PowerPoint. No tears in heaven, Revelation 7:17. There's no sickness in heaven, Revelation 22:2. There's no pain in heaven, Revelation 21:4. Amen, Ralph. No pain in heaven. There's no death, Isaiah 25 and 8, 1 Corinthians 15:26, Revelation 21:4. No pain, no death. There's no thirst or hunger, Revelation 7:16. There's no more sin. I will not have to struggle with my old carnal nature. Paul said those things I want to do, I don't do. And those things that I do, I shouldn't do. And he goes into this mental gymnastics mumble jumble. He says, who is going to deliver me? He says, thank God through Jesus Christ. No sin in heaven. There's no more judgment upon sin. Revelation 22, 3. Since there's no sin, there's no more judgment, no more condemnation. There's no need for the sun or the moon. Revelation 21, 23. There's no night for those of you who are scared of the dark. Revelation 21, verse 25, and Revelation 22, 5. And the city will shine with, and will be enlightened by God's wonderful glory. John 17, 24. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a positive message. In a culture that's politically correct with all the stuff and talking heads you're seeing with the Republicans and Democrats, this transcends all that conversation. We are born-again believers, whether you're an independent, Democrat, or Republican. It makes no difference. I'm first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. My loyalty is to Him. I am just passing through on this life. And it's God's desire that the love of Christ will be shown to every single person. And here's what's awful cool. You don't have to be super smart, super talented, super gifted. Super connected. You can have faults and warts with your, with your character. All those different things. But here's a great reality. Jesus Christ enables all of us. He loves to take the weak and the simple to confound the wise and the geniuses of our culture and the power of the gospel. May God give us here at Corinth a, a, a revival in our hearts Rather than wait for some event or a building or whatever, just stop and take inventory. Having a, 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 a moment where I was so proud of those seniors, and I know it represented so many families and friends, it was probably a highlight of my year being here. And to see those teachers and the awards given to those tenured teachers who had given their life to this unique calling. But beyond that, I got the message in my mind, Lord, what about us? How many are we graduating from our churches at various ages to launch out that gospel? Let's pause for prayer. So our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We think about...